Let's open in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for um, the uh, opportunity we have tonight to come before you humbly, um, opening the word as needy uh, children who come before their father. Uh, we're fragile and we're common. And everyone who has ever been called your child is fragile and common. Yet, throughout the course of history, we see you do amazing things with fragile and common, tired, weary people. And I'm encouraged by that tonight. Lord, I pray that as we uh, work through uh, the texts tonight, that it wouldn't just be head knowledge that we gain, but that our hearts would truly be affected with the truth that you uh, choose to share with us through your breathed out word and the understanding you choose to give us by the power of your spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless the kids tonight in their class as they head over to their classes and to see so many of them, probably half of who was in here stand up and leave when the kids are dismissed. I'm I'm encouraged and I'm thankful to see families raising their children in the fear and the discipline of the Lord. And I pray that you would bless their time with their uh, teachers, that the teachers would have wisdom and insight to know how to speak words fitly and to communicate clearly and to appeal uh, to the hearts of our children. Uh, we are a blessed people indeed. I pray that you would guide our time. We humble ourselves before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Better get that. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to be in Exodus 38. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to, essentially, we have three chapters left, and we've got two weeks of study to, to finish them. I'm hoping to do 38 and 39 tonight. Not sure if time will permit. It's a lot of text, a lot of ground to cover. But we're just going to move through as much as we can tonight, and what we don't get through tonight, um, next week is Thanksgiving. Uh, we won't be having Wednesday night services because Thanksgiving is the next day. So there won't be any meetings, uh, no, no activities at this building next Wednesday night. The Wednesday after that is our last study in Exodus, and so we will finish it. So don't be a loser who doesn't come back after Thanksgiving holiday, okay? Don't be a loser. Tell your friends, don't be a loser, um, because we'll be finishing the, uh, the study and have a lot to look back on. And then December 5th, which is only three weeks away, if anyone wants to freak out, um, will be our uh, night of recounting where we'll come together and I'll send out some stuff via email uh, to you guys to prepare for that because I, I don't want us to just come together and then recount. I want y'all to prepare what you want to share with other members of the body during that time. And so I'm going to send out some email to kind of guide y'all in that and, and, and help y'all prepare. So let's go into it. Exodus 38. We'll recap a few things from last week as always and then we'll move into the text. First, uh, last week we saw that those, there were some words spoken that may have never been spoken since and were probably never spoken previous by those in leadership. And does anyone remember what those words were? Huh? Quit giving. Yeah, that's, that's the, we've got enough. Y'all don't need to give anymore. We're good. That, so they were, um, free will. That's, you said free will. That's funny. Um, uh, no one's ever spoken that since. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's funny. All right. Um, so anyway, uh, so 
what happened was the people were bringing their offerings, and, and there were free will offerings, and it was such abundance that those in leadership said, stop, we have more than enough to accomplish what God has called us to do. And so, um, I already said this, but to be clear, what were the kind of offerings that the people were bringing? To, to be clear. Gold, free will, there you go, Patrick. Um, free will gold. Um, a good album name. Anyway, uh, why were they bringing offerings in such a manner? Sweet aroma to the Lord. Why else? Yep. They had to build the tabernacle. Why did they have to build it? Yeah, God's presence to dwell. Exactly. And so um, they were bringing these offers in a manner that um, they were not um, burdened by it or put off by it, but in fact, they were thankful that God had forgiven them. They were thankful that God had restored them, and it was the thankfulness that they held in their hearts that really overflowed in this abundance of giving. Um, they saw that what they had was not just a portion of it belonging to God, but they realized they would still be slaves in Egypt. But now they're free, and they have the, the treasures of Egypt because God gave it to them. They, they plundered them verbally before they left. And so they're thankful to God that he's forgiven them. They're thankful that he didn't make them move on without, without him from the base of Mount Sinai. And they're thankful that he restored the covenant. And so they're, they're bringing these free will offerings out of thanks. And if the people were bringing free will offerings morning by morning, what must be characteristic of the builders and the workers? What'd you say? Very busy, yes. What else? Skilled, what else? Faithful, trustworthy, yeah, faithful, trustworthy stewards who are skilled and going to do what God told them to do. And so, um, in the context, the, the text that we're looking at, if you haven't been here in a while or in a few weeks or whatever, we're building the tabernacle right now. We're seeing them build the tabernacle. They've talked about it a long time. They haven't talked about it. Particularly, God has spoken to Moses while he's on top of the mountain about it in, in significant detail. And now they're, they're, they're carrying out the details and, and they're... Um, they're, they're building the tabernacle. And so um, how would you define good stewardship in this scenario? What would be a good definition of good stewardship? Exactly. Are they doing what God has said with the money that has been given by God's people or the treasures that have been given by God's people? Um, and that's how we define good stewardship today. Are we doing what God says with the resources that he brings to his people? Um, we don't have like a business model here. The, everything that is going on at Crosspoint financially and the, and the resources that we have are, are by contributions. It's 100% driven by contributions. And so we always have to ask that question, are we being good stewards? One, are we doing what God says? Are, or are we just winging it and doing what we want to do, what we think would be hip and neat and bring a lot of people in? We gotta be doing what God says. And so that's how we can define good stewardship. Are we doing what God has said with that which he has, has given us through his people. So, uh, one reminder for us from last week that we'll continue to see this week is that abundant provision still requires a lot of work. Abundant, and we're gonna, we saw it last week, we'll see it again this week. Abundant provision still requires a lot of work. A lot of us think, if I only had more provision, I wouldn't have to work as hard. But the reality is that abundant provision will always require more work. And that's okay, because as we established last week as well, 
we're called to lives of work with seasons of rest, not seasons of work with lives of rest. And so we're okay with the hard work. We need to rest rightly in that, but the abundance of resources will result in more work. And this is why the details are so important. That's why the details of the work are important. About 25% of what is recorded in the book of Exodus is repeated verbatim details. Everything we're going to look at tonight, we've already looked at. Verbatim. You can go back to chapter 25 and, and do kind of back and forth, and you can see the words exactly repeated by God as he sees fit in his breathed out word. Everything we'll engage is something we've already engaged. So by God's design, he wants everyone here to engage it again and see the beauty of obedience. As a teacher, I want to bring you something new, fangled, and awesome that you're like, I've never heard that before. And sometimes God says, no, you're going to, like, you already taught this, and so you're going to go teach it again, because by his design, he wants us to hear it again, or he wouldn't have put it in his breathed out word twice. Without seeing it twice, we are lacking in the area of being equipped for every good work and competent, as it says in 2 Timothy 3. So, are y'all ready to do what we've already done? Good. That's excitement, and I just love the excitement. Um, I feel like we dwindled a little bit from five minutes ago, so, so let's, let's dig in. Um, uh, keep your finger in Exodus 38. We're going to get to it quickly, but turn over to John 1.14. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word dwelt there in the original language is tabernacled. So as we're looking at the details of the tabernacle, I want y'all to see that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As we engage again these details of the tabernacle, I want us to do so through the lens of understanding that Christ came and tabernacled among us. As I look at details regarding the, burnt, the altar burnt offering, the bronze basin, things of that nature, I want us to look through the lens of the fact that Christ came and tabernacled among us. Joseph Ryan says this. His nickname is Skip, in case anyone wants to know. Skip says, the Old Testament tabernacle is where God moved in and lived with his people. So remember, the tabernacle is significant. It's, it's different from the tent of meeting. It's in the center of the camp, and it's where God's dwelling with his people. So the Old Testament tabernacle is where God moved in, lived with his people. This tabernacle has no meaning apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus was not an afterthought where God included some details to make you remember the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the way that God would prepare us to understand and receive and make room in our hearts and our minds for Jesus. So without Jesus, the tabernacle makes no sense. Its whole purpose in the wilderness was to point people forward to the true tabernacle who was to come, the Son of God. As Colossians says, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We do not understand the teaching of the Old Testament in all of its fullness unless we read it through Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The tabernacle has absolutely no meaning apart from Jesus. Thousands of years before Jesus, God purposed that there would be a tabernacle in order that there would be the true, that there would be the true tabernacle for us. Just as the tabernacle in the wilderness contained and displayed God's glory, even more do we behold, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, um, the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
So if you were in the tabernacle and you went inside the tabernacle, you were part of that priesthood, you would behold the glory of God. And because we are in Christ, we are a royal priesthood, and we get to see the glory of God in the face of Christ in a manner even more significant than Moses seeing just from behind. It's amazing what we're looking at if we look at it through the lens of Jesus, okay? So turn back to Exodus 38, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, five cubits its breadth. It was square, and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of the one piece with it, with, and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans. He made all the utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze, under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry with him. He made it hollow with boards. The altar of burnt offering. Now, this is one of the first things you're going to see as you walk into the temple courts, the altar of burnt offering. Um, This was located at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and it was there on purpose. It would, it, what would that emphasize? Think about what the altar was used for and imagine if we had one at the door when you got here. What would that represent? What would y'all think when you saw that altar? It was, it was important. What else? Why not? Things are slaughtered there. When you slaughter an animal, there's smells, there is blood, there's lots and lots of blood. And what would they do once they slaughtered an animal? They'd burn it. You know what stinks worse than a slaughtered animal? A burning slaughtered animal. And that's what they would engage at the, at the entrance when you walked in. So imagine if we had something at the entrance of our door where when you walked in, you were immediately reminded, immediately reminded of the holiness of God and the depravity of the sinner. That's what that does. When you see that, when you smell that, when you hear the bleeding that you know will not exist in a few minutes because of the sins of the people, you will have a, an immediate sense of the holiness of God and the depravity of the sinner, of which we're the sinners. So, uh, who is allowed to come before God without a sacrifice? Yeah, the priest will do the sacrifice for the people, and they do their own as well. Moses could, in a leadership form, but, but particularly, what, what kind of people have the opportunity and right to go before God without that sacrifice? Sinless people. And who would that con- uh, entail? Jesus. Yeah, yeah. That, and in fact, that's exactly where we're going to go in Hebrews. But, but you only go before God without a sacrifice if you were able to keep from sin since your last sacrifice. Y'all see that? My, my question is, what sins would the sacrifice cover? All previous. Y'all are both right. All your previous sins. So if I come in, I see that, I'm reminded of the holiness of God, I'm reminded of my own depravity, and, and I bring, I'm bringing my, off, my, my um, sacrifice with me because I know 
that without a sacrifice, I have no right to, to go before God. And I bring that, and, and I, I, it's slaughtered by the priest, it's burned on the altar, and here I am. All the sins up until that point are taken care of because of the sacrifice of the animal. Now, what would be needed again soon? Another sacrifice. Another sacrifice. <laughs> like, I need another sacrifice. Yeah, it, it, it was, um, those were, were given, the sacrifice were given, and it would cover your previous sins. And within a moment's time, another sacrifice is needed. So when I ask, who's allowed to come before God without a sacrifice? Only he who is sinless. So that doesn't include us. That doesn't include any Israelite that ever walked the face of the earth. Everyone. You do not dare come before God without a sacrifice. So, Evers reminds us of this. He says, it was not a pleasant thing to see an innocent animal slaughtered and burned, but sin is an ugly thing. And the sacrifice here, as well as that on Calvary, should be a vivid reminder of the hideousness of sin and its price. When we read this, when we look at this altar of burnt offering and we think about what happened there, the blood that was spilled, the killing of the innocent animal, the burning of the innocent animal, and we see that it, it took care of the sins of the people up until that point, we need to think of Calvary. We think, need to think of the cross. and We need to think of the hideousness of our sin and the beauty of the one who died in our place. It should cause thankfulness in our hearts and it should cause us to, be, to think deeply on, on what he's done. Now, um, turn to Hebrews 10 because... Remember, we want to look at this through the lens of Christ. The tabernacle makes no sense if not for Jesus. So Hebrews 10. And we're going to look at, I'll read verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So you bring your animal, you give it to the priest, you see the altar, and, and, he, and he sacrifices the animal, and he lights it on fire, but what can that never accomplish? What can it never take away? Sins. It can't take away what's gonna happen. It can't, it can't with one sacrifice. You're not going to be able to say, okay, I'm good for a month. I'm good for a year. I'm good for 24 hours. You can't even say I'm good for a, a minute because it can't take away sins. So every priest stands daily at the service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when you look at it through the lens of Christ, that's beautiful. Is that not amazing? I mean, Christian people should read that and be like, wow, look at what he has done that no one, even the greatest of all priests, even the most diligent could never do. Because he gave himself, and he now sits interceding for us, for by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. To, we hear that so much that we become numb to that, how good that news is. But I want you to think of yourselves as an Israelite. Imagine over and over and over and over and over again 
bringing that sacrifice and watching over and over again the blood spilled, watching over and over again the fire being put to it. Imagine what good news it would be for someone to say, hey, there's a single offering that can perfect that for all time. Like there's a way that that doesn't have to keep happening over and over again. Imagine how good of news that would be. Like you don't have to keep bringing an, another goat, another bull, another ram. Like th- there's an offering that could be perfected for all time for, for those who are being sanctified. So when we see this through the lens of Christ, we're very encouraged. And we should be, um, our hearts should be filled with thanks. And that should in, in turn cause us to see our role in the priesthood, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Um, turn back to Exodus 38. Look at Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, e- yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, up until the point that the Hebrews church was even put into place, that was what was known and, and believed, and Christ changed all that. And, and it's, it's so amazing, like even from Sunday's message, that from the point where, where Cain was conceived and they were awaiting his birth, there was this expectation of a savior child. Like from the get-go, there was a hope that someone would fix this and make it better and bring us back into a right relationship with God. And so you have that dynamic where it's like, it'd be so hard to believe, yet even though it's hard to believe, God has ingrained in his people a desire to believe it. You know, a desire to say, oh, finally, finally, there's relief. No, that was a good point. (laughs) No, that was a good point. It would be difficult, but there'd be something in you that helps you. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been sweet and confusing and difficult. I mean, the Hebrews church—they didn't—they wanted to go back to what they knew to be true. I mean, so you're you're dead on there. They 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 wanted to close the doors and they wanted to go back to what they knew. Sort of like Israel wanted to go back to what they knew in Egypt. But but there's a, a sweetness there and a relief there, but even a confusion there. That that's why we have to not neglect gathering, because. Everyone in here would probably say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I love him. He's my savior, my treasure. But, but we have to remind each other of what that means and, and so that we don't fall back into just worldliness. I mean, it says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The indication there is if you're not being transformed, you will be conformed to the world. 
And so they needed to hear this truth as much as we need to hear this truth today. Um, look at verse 8. It says, He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. The ministering women are, in, are mentioned again later, but I don't know if it's a direct correlation. Um, um, but there are ministering women here, and they have these mirrors, and essentially, if they're high-quality mirrors, they would have been cast in bronze. So you'd have the mirror set in like kind of a bronze frame. And so that was what they brought to make this basin, which there's an interesting dynamic there of, you know, what you see and what happens in the basin. But um, my question, we're looking at the bronze basin. Um, I want you to picture the priest making the sacrifice. You know, imagine... He just made the sacrifice. Uh, and once it is set to the fire, his hands are still covered in the blood of the innocent animal. And he, he's been making sacrifices all day. And so um, he then goes to the bronze basin to wash. My question is, what might the bronze basin reveal to us about sanctification? What might the bronze basin reveal to us about sanctification? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, I mean, that's pretty poetic. That's like, like, that'd be a good, like, people who make movies like that kind of stuff, because it's so, like, imagine that clear wall, you see yourself, and then you, you put it in the blood, and, and you, there's cleaning there. What is sanctification? The process of becoming more like Christ. And how long does that usually take? Okay, uh, your lifetime. And how does it normally happen? <laughs> Slowly through pain. <laughs> Say that again. The repentance, okay. Turn, turn over to Ephesians 5. Keep your finger in Exodus because we'll go right back to it. Through suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Chosen, called, and then we know that what we're called to involves suffering. And it says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, there's realities that we face, but those realities only make sense to us in light of one, one thing that we must have, a puzzle piece that has to be there. And if it's not there, we're just confused. And in Ephesians 5.25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. How does sanctification happen in that verse? Say that again. Yeah, being washed in the water of the word. Washed in the water of the word. Now, is it only women who need sanctification? And luckily the men are here to take care of that. Yeah, okay. Key's going to need a ride home. If someone could give Key a ride home. Um, uh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a really easy process. It doesn't take much effort at all. Um, I'm being very facetious. Um, yeah, washing with the water of the word. Man or woman, we wash as we apply the truth of the word to our lives. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And at the very least, it would have to be a really thorough washing. I mean, if, if y'all have ever skinned a deer, I mean, we're in Hunt County, I think I could say that, and pretty much everyone in the room has skinned something within the last week. Um, but when the blood dries, I mean, there's a, you've got to scrub, and you've got you to get to it. No? Someone over here? No? Okay. You vegetarians? Yeah. 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 The, yeah. That, that's that's a really good point. God gives us His Spirit, and it says that His Spirit gives us power to break strongholds. Like there's a divine power to break strongholds. And so when we go to the Word and we have the power of the Spirit, there's a divine power to break strongholds, which in breaking the strongholds that we have in our lives, there's, it's sanctification. We're being made more like Christ. Christ didn't have a bunch of strongholds and, 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 and sins that were always coming up where he would sin and he would sin and he would sin. We do. And so to be made more Christ-like, those strongholds have to be broken. And through the Word, man or woman, we wash as we apply the truth of the Word to our lives. Um, and so... Um, we're sanctified and made more like Christ throughout the course of our lives. So you can conclude that throughout the course of your lives, there's never a time where you're not going to need this. No one ever graduates from this. No one ever gets to the point where like, yeah, I know that pretty thoroughly. So, you know, every now and again, I'll go and check it out. It's not like I have um, some books that I'll go back to that I've read them a lot. But, you know, once a year, I'll go and, and take a look at them just to remind me, like there's one called um, Getting Things Done. And ironically, I haven't actually finished that book yet, but I've read most of it. Um, <laughs> And then, um, like, Howard Hendricks' book on living by the book. Um, I've read that, and I've read it thoroughly, but every now and again, I'll go back to it. Um, just for a refresher. There's never a time where you'll get to, in your process of sanctification, where, uh, I'm going to go back to the Word, just for a little bit, just because I need a refresher. That's not how it works. We, if we are being sanctified, it won't happen apart from this. It won't happen apart from this. Members of the people of God gather as the church, and we go to this and that's how the washing happens. That's how the sanctification happens. Um, yeah. 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 That's a great point. We don't need to assume Jesus at all. And so we started out with John 1 tonight that the, the word tabernacled among us. And so um, there's a great reminder there, that, like Romans 14 anything done outside of faith is sin. I, I can do what this says. I'll fail, but even in the areas that I don't fail, if, if, if I'm not doing it in faith, it's still sin. And so, and faith is not just vague and nebulous. It's faith in Jesus. And so it, it, everything has to do with Jesus. Every detail of tabernacles, we're looking at this. Um, it all has to do with Jesus. Um, look at the temple courts in Exodus 38. And he made the court from the south side. Um, the hangings of the court were of the fine twine linen, 100 cubits, their 20 pillars, their 20 bases were of bronze. Of the hooks of the pillars, their fillets were of silver. And on the north side, there were of, um, 
were hangings of 100 cubits for their 20 pillars. Their 20 bases were of bronze. The hooks of uh, the pillars and, and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits. Their, pillar, their 10 pillars, their 10 bases, uh, the hooks of pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the east, the 50 cubits, the hangings for the one side of the gate were 15 cubits uh, with three pillars and three bases. So for the other side, on the both sides of the gate of the, of the court were the hangings of 15 cubits and were three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twine linen and the bases for the pillars were of bronze and the hooks, uh, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals were also of silver and all the pillars of the court were filleted I'm guessing filleted's a word, uh, with silver, it doesn't sound like it. And the screen for the gate of the court were embroidered with needlework. So someone in all this had to know how to do needlework. Um, in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, it was 20 cubits long and five cubits high in, in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court, and their pillars were four in number. Their bases, uh, their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of the silver. Of silver, and all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. Now, um, a couple psalms. I don't want you to turn there. I'll turn there and I'll read them. But when you hear temple courts, what are some psalms y'all just think of? I mean, y'all are Christian people who know your Bibles. What are some things you think of? Probably the same ones I'd be turning to. Courts, temple courts, Jesus, go. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. What else? Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. What else? A line of people. I'm with you. I like it. I picture them on the right. I don't know why, but the line's on the right. What else? Okay, uh, 65, Psalm 65 verse 4 says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. What does that tell us about the temple courts? Satisfaction. What else? How do you get there? Being brought there. What does that have to do with Jesus. Jesus brings us there. Does anyone come to the Father in any other way but by the Son? No. Okay. So as we see these temple courts, we need to think of the fact that we are brought near. Those are people who are in the temple courts are blessed and they're satisfied. And that's how it is for us in Christ. Blessed and satisfied. But there's no other way to come near the Lord except for in Christ. I'll, I'll also just do one more. Psalm 104. I've got a long list of them because um, there's lots of examples. But uh, Psalm 100 verse 4 simply says... Uh, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. What does that tell us about the temple courts and Jesus? How do we enter? Joyfully with thanksgiving. And why? Because we're blessed and satisfied. As I said in the previous verse, we're blessed, we're satisfied, we enter his courts with thanksgiving, with praise because of what Jesus has done. There's no other right way to approach God. It's interesting, in Philippians, 
I have actually quoted this verse wrong in front of people, not even thinking about it. But I would say, in Philippians it says, um, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known. And the God of peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus with a peace that exceeds understanding. I've quoted that like that a thousand times. And guess what I left out? A really important part. It says, it actually says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known. I, I actually left that part out a number of times. I lost sight of that. And it's interesting because when I went back to that and I looked at it on the praying thought, I realized thanksgiving is the thing that kind of holds that verse together. It's sort of the glue of the verse. And here I am, I just, I'm thinking, man, it's good. We don't have to be anxious. We go and we let our request be made known. With thanksgiving, because if you are able to go before God, whether things are good or things are bad, if you're able to go with him, go before him with thanksgiving, what do you have there? What's the, what's offering? Faith? Humility? What else? I'm thinking of sober-mindedness. I'm thinking if things stink and I can still go before him with thankfulness, I've got some perspective there that's, that's eternal and that's good. If things are great, I can go before him with thankfulness, that's generally a little easier. But when things stink and you can still go before him with thankfulness, you have a perspective then. That's kind of the glue that holds it together. So here, we enter his courts with thanksgiving, no matter what. And, and he will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. He'll give us a peace that exceeds understanding. But that peace will not be there if there's not thankfulness in our hearts. We have to be thankful. We have to be continually mindful of all that God's doing. I read something this last week that just kind of reminded us that for, for the 10,000 things that God's doing in our lives, we may know three of them. That's about the balance. Because he's always doing more than we realize. He knows our deepest needs before we voice them. A.W. Pink says, The court is called the tent of the congregation of the tent of meeting. Now it is in Christ and in him alone that God and his people meet together. So those temple courts where they would come together for us, that's Christ. In God, in Christ alone, that God and his people meet together. The court then spoke of Christ as the meeting place between God and his people. Christ was accessible to all who sought him, but his glory beheld only by those who drew near in faith. The next section is of materials of the tabernacle. And I want to look at the first part, just for the sake of time. I would encourage you all to read this even when you get home, just to go through the exercise of looking at it again. But for the sake of time, I want to look at this beginning part. It says, these are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses. The responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the gold that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of, of the sanctuary. Then they talk about the silver. They talk about the talents of silver. They talk about the shekels that were made for the hooks, the pillars, the overlaid um, capitals, the fillets. Um, they talk about the bronze. Um, they talk about the, the other bases and the pegs. All the details. Who was the guy responsible for that? What's a name mentioned here of specific responsibility? What'd you say? Ithamar, yeah, Ithamar. Now, I want y'all to consider his noted responsibility here. 
We could just read over it and be like, yeah, I remember his name mentioned two or three times before where it's Moses and, and the sons and I saw Ithamar in there. But here, he has a noted responsibility that we need to pay attention to. To me, this is a good reminder that the work of the church is never a one-man show. Never, ever, 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 never a one-man show. There's always more to do, and there's always people who've been gifted in specific ways to do what the Lord has commanded us with the resources that he's given us. And so the work of the church is never done by one man or, or even just by a couple. It's the work of the people. And here Ithamar is a member of the people, and he has a significant responsibility. There's these behind-the-scenes movements that are of extreme importance. The resources amounted, I, I nerded it up, and I went and added it all up. The, the resources amounted to over 2,175 pounds of gold. 2,175 pounds of gold. Which by today's rate is about $55 million worth of gold. Which doesn't account for the silver, the bronze, the fine twine linens, and the precious stones. So, Ithamar had a different responsibility than Bezalel. And he had quite the task of directing the Levites to account for every resource. I want y'all to think about that. That's, that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot. Um, our budget, our operating budget per year here is around $450,000. I have a computer program where I can see every dollar spent and who spent it and why they spent it, and if it was budgeted, are we over, are we under? By what percentage are we over or under? And I still stress out about overseeing that on a regular basis. It's like, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to get things out of whack. I don't want to lose sight of the resources we have and use them wrongly. $55 million worth of gold. No QuickBooks, no spreadsheets, no computers, not to mention all the work that was done. There are no outlets. They're not plug-in and power tools. It's all done by hand with hand tools. It's tedious. But what I want us to see here is like all of the hard work, all the attention to detail took a significant level of diligence and attention, a significant level. I mean, we have resources today. I mean, we could knock out what they did in, in half the time. But does that always promote more diligence or does it promote less? We got to make sure that the resources that we have and that we use to, take, to keep track of our resources don't make us less diligent, but more. Because when I think of this guy, Ithamar, who's, who's got charge over the Levites and 55 million pounds of gold, not counting all the other stuff, I'm thinking, man, he had to pay attention to the details. He had to know his people. He had to communicate to the Levites clearly. How much do you have? Did you count it? Three times, four times, okay, where is that? Where is it located? Where'd y'all store that? Are we sure about those numbers? Because every detail that's included in here is commanded by God. $55 million worth of gold and a bunch of people who have no computers, no power tools, and no spreadsheets. I mean, it's just amazing the level of diligence. Now, this last part in the priestly garments, we'll spend a few minutes looking at this. Do y'all remember when we looked at the priestly garments previously? And what were some of the details of the priestly garments that y'all can remember from our, our wonderful study that we had on those priestly garments that was very detailed and, and I'm sure memorable to everybody? What, what are some of the details that, that, that y'all remember of the priestly garments? A lot of precious stones on the breastplate. How many particularly, when you say a lot, would you mean? Twelve. Fantastic. 
What else do you remember? Yeah, stones on the shoulders. Yeah, right here with the things like, like that. So, blood splattered on it. Why would blood be splattered on these really nice fine twine linen priestly garments? That's right, covered in the blood. Okay, what else do y'all remember? Yeah, yes. Yeah, purple, scarlet. Yeah, lots of gold filigree. I don't know. Did they get a new one every year? I don't remember that. I don't, I don't think so. But they did. They only wore that when they were doing the priestly duties. So it wasn't like, hey, I'm a priest. This is what I wear when I go to Taco Bell or whatever. It was they only wore, they only wore that when they were doing their priestly duties. Um, they wouldn't wear it out and about on the town. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, what would they wear on their head? Hats of what type? Of the turban type, hats of the turban type, and there would be what on the turban? Little gold plate, anyone remember what it says on it? Yes, it's um, a holy to the Lord, something along those lines. Yeah, they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on the inscription like the engraving on the signet, holy to the Lord, and they tied a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. So they do... They are decked out. Everything is, is symbolic. Now, um, one commentator really bluntly says, uh, why would 21st century Christians examine the wardrobe of an ancient Hebrew priest? Because Aaron, Moses' brother, is a type of the Lord Christ, our great high priest. Types or persons or objects or events that serve as prophetic illustrations or likenesses of New Testament fulfillment. So when we're looking at the, new, the, the, the priestly garments, we're looking at details that relate to Jesus. So... Um, when the high priest went into the presence of God, he carried with him the names of all the Israelites in two places. What were the two places? Y'all said it earlier. Shoulder and his heart. What is that significant of? Yeah, strength. There's a picture of strength there. And, and, if, and the ones on the heart? A compassion and a level of love and, 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 um, and uh, affection. Um, he bore their names on the shoulders this indicated the responsibility of the high priest to care for them with the strength provided, and he carried them on his heart, which was to show the love that he had for them. So what we see here is God, through his priesthood, exercising strength and affection for his people. Um, this is important. Uh, some people might find it necessary. Uh, I like that word. Uh, necessary. Uh, to limit God to only one of those two characteristics. He's either strong or he's compassionate. And, and we have to make sure we, we always see both. Uh, if we think he only saves us because of our depravity, then we can lose sight of his affections towards us and will inevitably result in a lack of affection for other people on our behalf. Um, if we only see the affection of God towards his people and we, don't, um, we lose sight of our depravity and need for strength of another, uh, we'll present people with a picture of God that wants to be their friend wants to be their buddy and show affection, but, but not their savior. And so strength and affection are two things that we need to see God exercising toward his people um, through the priesthood. Uh, Malachi 3, 16 through 18, refers, uh, God refers to his children as his treasured possession, and he is sparing them that they would serve him in righteousness. 
So we put all those little pieces together and we see God through the priesthood loving his children, referring to them as his treasured possession that we might serve him. Now, we'll close. Turn to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. You see these details of the priesthood. And anytime we look at the priesthood, we just, just make it a point to turn to 1 Peter 2. Anytime you see anything about priests, priesthood, priestly garments. And we'll look at verse 4 and 5 and then verse 9. We'll jump over to it. Verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So as we see the, the dwelling of God being the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the dwelling place of God among his people. We need to zoom out and see ourselves. A house being built up. The dwelling place of God is now his people. And so uh, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So we're a house and we're a priesthood. A holy priesthood like the one we read about tonight. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. And then look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. That is our role. When we see what the priests did going in, showing strength for the people and compassion and affection for the people by bearing up their names before God, that's why we are called to pray. We don't just pray flippantly. I was talking to someone earlier today that he was really convicted that he wanted to give some form to his prayer life. He said it was just kind of nebulous and sometimes he'd pray about specifics, sometimes it'd be vague, sometimes it'd be long, sometimes it'd be short, but he was wanting to keep track of what he was praying about for people. How, he was convicted about, how do I bear up the names of particular people to God, showing affection toward them, toward God, and showing strength for them toward God. And so we're a royal priesthood. So um, uh, the priesthood is no longer restricted to an elite group within the church. Now all believers, male and female, are priests who bring to the great high priest the offering of their lives, their praise, and their service. Romans 12 calls it a life of sacrifice, offering your bodies as living sacrifice, holy to the God, holy to God, pleasing and acceptable. And this can never be accomplished on our own efforts. It is only those who are in Christ, our great high priest, our unblemished sacrifice, who have hope to be counted righteous, in the eyes of God, who might live in such a manner that they are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, chosen, set apart, showing strength for others, showing affection for others as we go before God and trust him with every detail. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Um, we covered a lot of ground tonight and my prayer is that we wouldn't go home confused or disconnected, but that we would be affected by the reality that you have called us to be a priesthood. You've called us to be holy. You've set us apart. Lord, I pray that as we consider Christ, that we would consider the sacrifice that was made, the blood that was spilled. We'd, look, we'd think of the Passover lamb that was fully consumed, yet not a bone was broken. That we would consider how you conquered death, and that you perfected for all time those who are yours. And that as we are here justified, we are still being sanctified. And I pray that we would take that seriously. That being made more Christ-like would not be something that is 
optional to us, but that every day, every moment, every communication we have with others, every response, every action, every word, we would say, is, is this showing one who is being conformed to the image of Christ? And that it wouldn't be burdensome to us as though, as though it's unfair, but that we would be entering into your court with thanksgiving and with praise because we know we are greatly cared for and we are satisfied in our Lord. Lord, I confess in front of everyone that, that my satisfactions are found in so many worldly things, just, just worldly comforts, worldly pursuits, and I don't want satisfaction in those things. I pray that anyone in here is struggling with worldliness, fleshliness, temporary, uh, temporary longings, that, that we would not find satisfaction in such things, but that we would know that satisfaction is only found in our Lord. Christ satisfies and in Christ we are cared for and we are turned into a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Lord, let us walk rightly in that conviction and turn from our sins and move toward Christ in a Christ-like manner. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.